Zone 3 Podcast. I am Robert. Yes, and I am Reggie. And we're joined today by Dr. K. Pepin. I pronounced that correctly. Yes, you are you from Rochester, Minnesota. Are you actually from there? Or you just live there I'm now? I'm from the Twin Cities. So okay. Minnesota, born and raised, and I've lived there my whole life. So. And you were just talking about you have three boys. I have two, so I can appreciate that. Yes. You got a house full of energy. We do. So you guys much like energy. to go camping. I love that. Yes. What other sort of stuff do you guys like to do? Baseball. Yeah, Boys baseball. Are big into baseball. Took them to the library this weekend. So we like to read. Oh, I should do more of that. <laughs> we watch a lot of YouTube is what we do. Yep. That's <laughs> we'll okay. They, they checked out books about Minecraft. <laughs> yeah. so. You want to give them a shout out and say, ha, oh, your mom made it. Hi, boys. I'm sorry I'm not there with you. Happy spring break. <laughs> <laughs> She's secretly playing Minecraft on that I laptop. Am. <laughs> yes, I am. Uh, well, you came to us today to talk about uh, elastography, I which did. is kind of a new concept in the world of MRI. It's... Um, well, it's an imaging tool that hasn't really been thought of before. So, it's, like I said, it's new. Tell us, if you would, how that whole thing came to be, like the origin story of it. Yeah. So, elastography, some people call it a new modality because we're really assessing stiffness of tissue. It's not one of the normal properties we think of, like relaxation time. Okay. So, MR elastography actually was developed at Mayo Clinic in Rochester and under the supervision of Dr. Richard Eman and his lab. So the first paper came out in 1995 and actually made the cover of Science with the visualization wow. of the shear waves. Very pretty picture and right. also a really cool advance in technology. So right. pretty exciting about that. And it took several years of development after that before they found the first clinical application, which is in the liver. So we mm -hmm. use MRE to assess liver fibrosis. So after the first publication in the liver, which was done by Dr. Meng Yin at Mayo, she's still leading the liver research there, and nice. she's a phenomenal researcher. That came out in 2001. So FDA approval came around in 2009. So this is actually a really exciting technology showing the translation from really bench to bedside. And with the use of that, it was pretty fast from that first clinical application to FDA approval. So now we see it used worldwide Wow. There's over 2,000 installations globally, um, and using MRI to measure the stiffness of something was kind of a novel concept. So if you think about stiffness, you, you think does, there are many disease processes that could affect the stiffness of tissue. That's why doctors use palpation to find tumors, for example. Huh. But how do you palpate the liver, or how do you palpate the brain? We, we can use MRI to do that now, to non-invasively measure stiffness, which is pretty cool. That is so it's cool. not just liver, it's the brain imaging you do as well? So liver is the current clinical application, which we have FDA approval for. There's insurance reimbursement, but there's a lot of research in other applications as well, such as brain. Right. And I know that... Uh it, we need to actually like make something vibrate, right? There's right. a paddle involved with this. There is. Um, and it's kind of funny. Like, I wonder, you know, when everything was being developed, because one of the biggest issues with MRI is motion. Yes. Were, were you motion guys like really bad. thinking like, oh man, are we really going to be able to pull this off with this paddle vibrating? Yeah. So one of the cool things, backstories to how this technology came about, we use acoustic pressure to vibrate the tissue. Oh yeah. Nice. So if, if you've ever had one before, it. It, imagine sitting in the back of a car with a subwoofer. That's basically where it came from. Right. They took the sub subwoofer out of Dr. Eamon's son's car and <laughs> used up. that to produce vibrations. And he's an abdominal radiologist now, too. So oh, it was awesome. motivation for right. his future career. And actually, you came pretty highly recommended by him. Yeah. Uh, so I did my PhD with Dr. Eamon and actually worked on using MRE to assess stiffness of tumors in response to treatment with both chemotherapy and radiation therapy. Oh, nice. So not the liver, but I'm near and dear to my heart. Right. 
And I've actually had a couple done on myself, so I've experienced that acoustic vibration. How, How... Oh, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say some people, after they've had one, say, can you just put them under my back and vibrate the whole thing? Because that was going to be my question. Like, how does it feel? How would you describe that feeling? Is it like a deep vibration or is it more like... Well, I think it's because we use a strap, right, to keep the paddle on. I think the tighter you go with the strap, the more to the core it feels, if that makes sense. Uh, I'm curious though, because you said you also consider brain imaging. Is my understanding is that's kind of how it was first thought as a use was going to be brain imaging. Is that correct? That that is one of the early ideas for using MRE, but then there are challenges with imaging the brain, like meeting a uh, mouth guard type of thing. Yes, with <laughs> like introducing baby syndrome. waves into the brain. <laughs> right. Um, that one of the earliest applications was a bite bar, which you could imagine would not be very. Right. Nice. Well, I am curious about like how jarring that could be and how detrimental like to one's health, like shaking somebody's brain like that. So there's there's no known safety events related to MRE. They're very small amplitude vibrations. So we the one of the reasons that we use MRI is because we are vibrating tissue on the order of nanometer displacements. So very, very small. We can use MRI to image them because we're so sensitive to motion. Right. Which is great for us, but less (laughs) great if if the motion's unwanted. Right. Is there other modalities that are in use? For elastography. Uh So there is ultrasound, but they produce vibrations at much higher frequencies. So for MRE, we vibrate the tissue at 60 hertz, so 60 vibrations per second. Ultrasound is in the hundreds of hertz, so much higher frequencies. You You don't feel that buzzing like you do with the liver MRE if you've had one before. Um, but their ultrasound is another technique that right. can be used for elastography. And I just really want to give Dr. Yeaman a big shout out because it takes a special type of person to take something that is usually looked at as a negative thing in MRI and really make it like a positive thing that we can utilize day in and day out to really help patients. It's kind of crazy. I was right? thinking outside the box on this one for oh sure. Oh my gosh, yeah, absolutely. right? Big shout out. Well, we're talking about paddles. and I know that you brought some. Can we kind of just yeah. grab a few of those and see yes. what they look like? So are they shaped? for the body habitus or the body part that's being imaged? So this is the rigid driver. This is the workhorse of MRE for the last few, for the last decade or more. Um, This, it's basically a a drum head. So this part vibrates. You connect it, oops, sorry. Connect it to the active driver, which is located outside the scan room. And then we strap this to the body surface. So if you can, you can tell it's, it's, a set shape it can be a little bit too large or too small for some patients but we and i we can talk later about patient setup and where we put this driver oh yeah Um, but one of the nice things about something we have coming is a flexible driver so if you're if if you're using these this really bends and conforms to the patient body and is much easier to place much more comfortable um, set less setup errors, things like that. So this allows for easier use and more comfort for the patients, which is great. And this is all made by you guys. We're sounding, I'm sorry, we didn't really cover who okay. makes all the, the technology behind all this stuff, right? Yeah. So Resoundant is uh, the company that was formed by Mayo Clinic to yeah. really bring this technology to the patients. 
So Mayo is a hospital, but we when you have a great invention like MRE, you want to be able to get it into the hands of the physicians and then eventually to the patients. Right. So Rosanna was founded by Mayo to help translate that technology to our patients, which That's is great. Awesome. So I actually have a joint appointment between radiology at, at Mayo Clinic in Rochester and then Resoundant, Sweet. where I support the use of MRE in clinical trials. Nice. Oh my God. And you said you guys are at 2,000 facilities worldwide? Yes. Um, I'm guessing the majority of them are here in the U.S.? About or... half are in the U.S. and half globally. Um, we do see, depending on, on where you're located, there's particularly high utilization in countries like Japan and South Korea, for example, um, Europe as well, some in South America. But right. We are seeing more and more use because of the need to diagnose liver fibrosis because of the growing epidemic of fatty liver disease. Mm -hmm. And we know some diseases could be hereditary. So based on different ethnicities, do you find that there's certain regions of the country that there's more need for? Like you so, mentioned Japan. So we so hepatitis C was a can be a, a major issue with treatment now we're seeing less and less of that but right. that could lead to liver fibrosis i think the current primary use is in fatty liver disease so non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or NAFLD is what can affect we think up to a third of adults in the world oh wow so that's a huge, right. huge issue. Yeah, I saw a number yeah. the other day. They think over 1 billion people may have fatty liver disease. Wow. And not everyone who has fatty liver disease will progress to have fibrosis and eventually cirrhosis. There's only a sub percentage of that that are at risk for the development of further liver disease. But identifying those patients and diagnosing their fibrosis and the status of their liver disease is really critical because not everybody can have a biopsy right? or should have a biopsy. Right. Do you guys actively campaigning for education towards ordering physicians so they're aware of this diagnostic tool? Like how, how is it that doctors even know about it? Yeah, are there naysayers? There, there are, I think, about MRI in general. So oh, yeah. most people recognize that MRE is the most accurate non-invasive technique for diagnosing liver fibrosis. Right. But then there's always going to be access issues and cost associated with MRI. Granted, liver biopsy itself is very expensive. Right. It requires patients to be away from work. You can't do them very often. So if you're monitoring the state of liver disease through time, you're not going to be doing repeat biopsies. Sure. But it, you could have other techniques like an ultrasound or a blood tests that help identify patients who are maybe at risk of advanced liver disease. But most of those tests have what's called a really high negative predictive value. So if, you're, if your blood test comes back normal, they know you're good. But if it comes back indeterminate they're not sure, or even those that come back with, we think you have liver disease, they have a very low positive predictive value. So oh. they're not quite sure if you have it, but they're not sure that you don't. So then they could go on to have MRE, which is a more accurate test. Oh, that's awesome. Man. And you were talking about reproducibility before we started recording. Like, what is the accuracy rate for this? That's a great question. So one of the, I think, really strong advantages about MRE over some other MRI techniques is the reproducibility and cross-platform compatibility. So MRE is available on four major scanner manufacturers at both 1.5 and 3T. So most existing and new 1.5 and 3T systems could have MRE installed on it. It's a hardware and software add-on. 
So one of the great things that we worked really hard to achieve is that cross-platform reproducibility. So if you have a, an MRE on one scanner at one hospital and then you move across the country and you have a new scan two years later, right. your physicians can know that that's still comparable. Part of that is related to the driver technology that we showed is consistent across all of them. And then I don't know if you guys have ever talked about Kiba, the Quantitative Imaging Biomarker Alliance. Oh, no. So this is an effort out of the RSNA to help standardize the use of quantitative imaging, both for clinical practice and clinical trials. So they work not just in MRI, but they do CT, ultrasound, most imaging techniques that are supported through the RSNA. And MRE was one of the was the first MRI biomarker to reach what they call technical conformance. So we've demonstrated that our technology is reproducible across hospitals, platforms, field strengths. And the number that we quote there is 19%. So this was done off a large meta-analysis of the published literature that looked at if a patient is scanned today and comes back tomorrow or two years from now, what is that? test, retest, repeatability. So if you see a 19% change in liver stiffness, you can know that that's true with 95% confidence. Wow. And 19% is actually, it sounds like a big number, but to go from stage two to stage three fibrosis is more than a 19% change. So that's kind of that margin of error we're looking at. Are there any like contraindications, like people who shouldn't have any elastography? Um, anyone who can have an MRI can have an MRE. Oh, awesome. So the contraindications there would, would be the same things that would exclude you from having an MRI. One of the things that we we talk about with <clears throat> why someone would have an MRE versus an ultrasound elastography, mm -hmm. body habitus can be a really significant issue for ultrasound. The more tissue between the ultrasound probe and the liver, they it's don't nice tend to work <laughs> very well. Right. With, uh. with MRE, we've actually had many studies performed at Mayo and at other places that looked at even bariatric surgery cohorts. So we had subjects with BMIs of over 50 that had successful liver MREs. So in that case, really waist circumference or the ability to fit into the MRI scanner is is the limiting factor. And one of I think one of the critical steps, and we can talk about that when we talk about setup, is making sure that that belt is really tight. The larger the subject, the really the tighter you want to get that belt to get the 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 source of the shear waves as close to the liver as possible. Yeah, I make a point to get pretty tight with those straps, but I'm curious because you mentioned BMI, and I know because mm -hmm. we do these at our facility, like, uh, and it says when you're activating the driver, like, and you're opening up resound it, and you're putting in the BMI. What is the importance of that? Like, what what changes with that? Like, the you, it's up to sixty hertz. You said, does it mean that it's different if it's a BMI? That's yeah. So we always vibrate at the same frequency, which is the okay. sixty hertz. But you can adjust the amplitude of, vib of vibration. So how strong that amplitude should be. Okay. Um, and we, I actually do have a slide on that. Um, this is a really important question that we we talk about a lot. We the amplitude of vibration depends on the, the patient size. So this is really where performing an MRE becomes a little bit more of an art. The, uh -huh. the more skilled you are at doing these, the better you'll be able to judge. Right. The nice thing is that these are relatively short exams. So if you get it wrong the first time, you can repeat it. It's, it's one breath hold. For and they're usually UCI. coupled with like an abdomen, a liver exam, right? Yes. But not always. I actually love doing these, by the way. I do them quite a bit and I, enjoy, I really enjoy doing them. It's satisfying when you get a good one. 
Yeah, it is. So we, this is out of a, a publication in abdominal radiology based on our experience at Mayo and with our other collaborators on recommendations for at least a starting point of the amplitude. So for a normal adult, we would say start at 40% vibration. Um, then if you have an obese subject, you can increase that to 60, even 80 if, if you have a particularly large subject. You never really need to go to 100%. I think that in most cases you'll be successful with 80%. Um, but then the smaller the subject, the more you want to decrease the amplitude as well. So we say here, you can kind of see that there's overlap in these recommendations. This isn't meant to cause confusion, but I always look at the BMI numbers. So if you, there's a difference between being a five foot individual, that's 170 pounds and a six foot individual that's 170 pounds. So really focusing on BMI, but we did supply uh, numbers just in case. And then also, I didn't, I don't have the table here, but if if you were to perform MRE on a pediatric patient, there's a table in that paper when the, with its reference out of Cincinnati Children's that has recommendations for peds patients as well. Awesome. We are seeing a growing prevalence of fatty liver disease in pediatric patients, particularly post-pandemic. So as kids became less involved in sports, sat at home, they started to gain weight. We're starting to see more and more increases in fatty liver disease in that population. And you definitely don't want to biopsy peds. So I think we'll see MRE used more and more. Now, is there a certain technique for like, I don't know, maybe adjusting amplitude or something for liver? Or do you just recommend, I mean, not liver, of course, liver, but like iron deposits on the liver or in the liver? Yes. So um, iron is probably the number one cause of technical failures related to MRE. We we see technical success rates around 98 percent. So the vast majority of the time you can get a successful exam with liver MRE. That two percent failure rate number came out of a meta analysis that was performed using an EPI based sequence. So if you have a gradient echo based sequence, you're going to be more susceptible to liver iron right. and you're going to have you could have a technical failure in that case. But a lot of those subjects that were scanned with the GRE could be done with an EPI and have a successful exam. We don't have a cutoff like there we don't know a cutoff of r2 star for example that says we know your liver mre is going to fail in this case really really high then it's pretty good guess but we do see really good success with the epi based sequences in patients with high liver iron so is there like something that the technologist should kind of be looking out for if we see that artifact like, how will we know if, if, yeah. if it is, like, iron So, I th- one of the ways, I don't I don't think I have a slide on this, but one of the ways that we, c- you can kind of get a quick judge, and you can tell me if I'm wrong about this, but if you're looking at your scout image and the liver is much, much darker than the spleen, there's a pretty good probability that they oh. have high liver iron. I see. So, that could be a case where, you know, you, you could suspect that the exam might fail. We do see... There, there are a lot of reasons why the MRE might be repeated and have a positive change. But liver iron is one of those that if it failed because of poor signal in the liver, mm-hmm. there's no point repeating it unless it was on a GRE and you have the opportunity to go to EPI. Or if you were on 3T, you could go to 1.5 if it's available at your institution. Oh, but high liver iron is one of those cases where 
if, if you had an exam like this, where you can see in the, the, the signal in the liver itself is very dark. Oh, yeah. If you look at the phase images, it just looks like noise. Right. There, there's no way it's the there. lungs or something. It does. Look, it does kind of look like you got the lungs in, in that <laughs> right. slice. Um, but that this would be a case where you wouldn't necessarily need to repeat the exam because you wouldn't gain anything from it. I see. That's good to know. I've had patients with the hemochromatosis, and you're right. Like right when you run that T2 haste. Yep. It's sort of your scalp to set up off the liver. And, and so basically, we're going to talk about setup, and we can get into it now. I'm curious, like when you are setting it up, you want to get it across the most transverse part of the liver, right? Yes. So we recommend having the widest cross-section of the liver while avoiding the superior and inferior margins of the liver. And then also away from the heart, too. And I'm also right. away from the heart, mostly because of motion. Yeah. But we do, part of the reason that we try to avoid the, the edges of the liver is because we're imaging the propagation of shear waves in two dimensions. So we... Uh, Mathematically, we're making some assumptions like the liver is a large homogeneous object, right. which in on the scale of the body and on the scale of the wavelengths that we're talking about is, is I it think, is. Right. relatively realistic, except at the boundaries. Right. So if, if, say, imagine the shear wave, instead of propagating straight, bounces up off the edge of the liver and comes back down, mm -hmm. you can get inaccurate results near the margins so we try to that's why you try to avoid the top and bottom does expiration versus inspiration matter we like to use expiration okay. i think because it's more reproducible for liver positioning I see. but if if the for whatever reason the patient can't hold their breath at expiration but they could hold their breath at inspiration then you could do the exam that way but there have been some publications that looked at reproducibility and found expiration did a little bit better. All right. And you mentioned that there's four vendors. My experience is only two because I've worked on it with the Siemens and GE. And is there? And I've noticed, is there different setups? Because it seems like there is between a Siemens and a GE. Like you do the upper and the lower on a GE. Or, oh, like slice group wise? Yeah. So it might it might depend on how you prescribe the slices across mm -hmm. vendors, but really the, the concepts are similar. So right. we typically do four slices. Um, I mean, head and... And through what, the thickest part, right? Through the thickest part. Right. Uh, depending on the the vendor, whether the patient goes in head first or feet first might matter. Right. Um, well, but And I wanted to, like, how truly important is positioning the paddle, right? Because that's, that's key, right? Yes. Right. It's, it's very important. So we do have recommendations for, I would say, the starting point for driver position. And um, that the superior inferior position is centered at the level of the xiphoid process of the sternum. So you can feel for that right. and identify where it is. That tells you about where the liver should be mm -hmm. at expiration. And then the left right position is at right mid clavicular line. So that's for most people, but depending on body curvature, patient right. size, you can shift in order to meet the the individual patient needs. And you shouldn't put it right on top of the breast tissue, no. right? Okay. No, if possible, avoid that it, okay. unless there's no other options. Right. Um, but then there are anatomical reasons why you could shift it. So if, if you do the scout, which make sure you do it at 
expiration. <laughs> oh, good call, right? Yes, yep. that's one of the key things. <laughs> um, and you see that the bowel is in the way between the, the driver and the oh. liver. You can shift the driver, say, to the right or even towards the patient's back in right. order to get shear waves into the liver and not have to go through the bowel. Well, you mentioned get it nice and tight, right? So me personally, I do I get it nice and tight, but because of that, it's extremely uncomfortable, especially if you get it right on the bend yes. of the ribs or if a patient has, if it's a female patient yep. with breast. So me personally, I always put it right on their side. Um, and if you get good results, that works well. You're going to love the flexible driver. I know. You, I saw that. I was like, ooh. No. Uh, yes. Can you see the driver on the localizer? You, ca you can actually. Oh, nice. So I have an example. I think that was in those extra and then, images. And also I wanted to ask you while you're looking that up because we're Robert's getting excited, by uh, the way. <laughs> when we are turning on the driver and you hit that trigger, oh, nice. now, does it vibrate the liver at that point? Where it we, does. So we could actually at that point QA it with the patient. Like, did you feel did that? Did you feel it? So that, that's an excellent oh. point. That's one thing that I always do whenever I'm imaging subjects. Right. It also helps so they know what it's going to feel like. And it, it removes some of that maybe jolt that first time that they experience it. Oh, nice. So here, one of the things that this this image is meant to show you is tightening the belt. So right. we, we do say this is, this is one of the biggest things that people can do to ensure a successful exam. You want it to be snug. Uh, we, we also recommend that you tighten it while the patient's at expiration because depending on the, the person, that can make a big difference. Right. It should be tight, but not so tight they can't breathe. They, especially if you're doing a full abdominal exam, that can be a long time for the belt to be there. If you're doing a limited liver where you're doing MRE and MRI-PDFF, for example, to look at fat and iron, then it's a shorter exam. Well, but, Sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. Well, the way we have it set up at work is like uh, we, like I said, it's coupled with liver exam mm -hmm. mostly, and so we'll run the MRE first, and then we'll just slide the that, and that works out too afterwards, just yep. for comfort. So depending on how you've positioned it and and your scout, for example, you can see the driver in place in the images. Yeah. And we actually put markers on ours. Some people do. So that can help so you know if the if the driver was there right. in the image, that can help too. But that's pretty evident right there where the where the You know, it doesn't always look that good. I, oh, I dug around uh, to find that image, but you can see it sometimes. <laughs> oh, and yeah, some people sure. you can't. This is Photoshop in no, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that it. good with Photoshop. <laughs> uh well, it might be off topic, but I was curious because when you talk about the logistics of the hardware and the driver and all that, is this something that's achievable to be done in a mobile unit or is this mo it can, only fixed unit? It can. So I, I know of at least one vendor where it can be available in a mobile unit. I think uh, when I think about how we could grow community outreach, particularly around fatty liver disease, having a mobile MRI system where the patient could come in, get their liver fat assessed with, right. with MRI-PDFF, and then liver MRE to, to look at the risk for fibrosis. That would be amazing. Because right. a lot of patients, even that live in large metropolitan areas, they, they may not want to drive an hour across town to get their MRE. Or patients that are located in, in more rural communities, we know that fatty liver disease is a huge issue right now. And identifying these patients early and knowing their risk for liver-related outcomes is really important. Right. Well, and I have a huge question. Like, how do you know when you have nailed it and this is a great 
You know, you got great results mm -hmm. versus poor results and you should repeat it. Yeah, like, that's, that's a great question. So I have some images because we love MRI. That's the best that's right. thing about working exactly. in radiology, right? Is <laughs> you get pretty pictures. <laughs> right. So I did come with some examples of how you could know whether the exam is successful or needs to be repeated. Um, I think this is one of the things that techs can easily look at because you right. get that instant feedback mm -hmm. on the scanner. Um, I'm going to start with this slide because it shows you what images are available. So we talk about the raw images with MRE. That's this top row, the magnitude image, which we look at for the anatomic reasoning so you could say if a patient wasn't holding their breath the magnitude image would be really blurry right and then the phase image which is where we encode the motion to capture that shear wave propagation so we he, these are available immediately and then the post-process images may take a minute or a few right. depending on the scanner to be available so um, that's just a quick pass through what you're going to see in these Images. Oh, so these are processed locally on the, on the scanner. scanner and yeah, not no so they're, oh, they're available. It's not instantaneous, but within a minute or two. Right. So when we think about where you're doing your MRE in the context of a larger abdominal exam, you could do it first. So then you can, you wait a minute or three and know whether the exam was successful, and then you could repeat it at the end. Right. MRE, the liver stiffness is not sensitive to contrast. So with contrast administration, you're not going to see a change in liver stiffness. Okay. There have been several publications that looked at that. So there are pros and cons to doing it pre or post contrast. Right. Pre, you have that time to repeat it if you need to. Post contrast, you do see a little boost in liver signal, which helps right. with the MREs as well. Sure. So kind of a balance between what you're looking for. But like I said, it's one or one to four breath holds. So if it did fail for some reason, hopefully you'd have time to repeat, repeat that one that. breath hold. Right. Um, but looking at, uh, let's start with a good exam. Yeah, I like so that. here we have a valid MRE. This is a stiff liver in a larger patient. So what are we looking for? First, we're looking at the magnitude image. I mentioned we typically do four slices. Mm -hmm. I've seen hospitals that do three. I've seen hospitals that do five. It really depends on what their physicians are looking for. But the, the, the typical is four slices. It gives you good coverage of the liver, around four centimeters. So that that's a pretty good sampling of the liver. If a patient has a much larger, smaller liver, you could vary it. But for the most part, we don't. So we're looking at the magnitude image to check that there aren't any major respiratory-related artifacts or things like that. You had liver in the image, right. at least one of them. It's a, good, it's a good thing to check for. Well, because the patient might switch up the their breath hold, The patient right? might have moved. Their, their breath holds might not be consistent. Right. So this is a good thing to check for. Right. And one of the things that you could do before you even get the post-processed images back, we look to, for this signal void in the subcutaneous tissue, mm -hmm. right where that orange arrow is pointed. So this shows that there was motion applied. We always think about motion and MRI being bad. Here's an example where it was bad, but it tells us that there was motion there. We're looking for that. So we do see signal loss there. That means motion was applied. In the phase, we call these a phase. These are the phase images. We also, I will refer to them as the wave images. These are also available instantaneously. And what we're looking for, imagine a wave flowing in and out of the page. And we see that here in this case. Then the bottom row are the post-processed images. 
So we get a grayscale, depending on, these might vary slightly depending on scanner manufacturer. Mm. We do see a grayscale wave image. The colorized wave image, it just helps draw your eye to see that the waves were there. And then the important images are these last, really this one, um, the masked elastogram showing stiffness from zero to eight kilopascals. Oh, yeah. What we're looking for there is you can see part of the image is, is hatched out. There's a if you see the oh, larger image, it's a black right? it's a black crosshatch yeah. that shows regions that are not reliable. Okay. There were not shear waves there. So what we're looking for is, is there usable area that's not hatched out in the liver? And here we see that. This might be a crazy question, but does the colors mean anything? Do the colors mean anything? They do. <laughs> so this is a quantitative map of tissue stiffness. Right. So each pixel is a stiffness value. So we measure stiffness and the unit is kilopascals. Mm -hmm. So a normal liver should be less than three kilopascals. Um, one of the interesting comparisons that a, some poor grad student did was that's about the stiffness of a jello jiggler. A jello jiggler. You're going to have to yep. elaborate on that one. What's a jello jiggler? You've had jello. Yeah, jello oh, jiggler. Oh, like jello jello. Yeah. Oh, but it jiggles. I but okay. but you, make it, you make it with more gelatin so it's stiffer. It's not just regular jello. Uh, it's the stiff jello. Okay. Didn't you have a childhood, bro? I know. I mean... Don't you remember the rainbow layers? <laughs> Mostly Mortal Kombat and Golden Eye, but... Moving on. <laughs> yep. So, so a, a healthy liver is less than three kilopascals, probably less than like two point five. But that's a good. A, I just remember the number three. It's easy. Right. So then, this is a stiff liver. You can see that most of the the values max out at that red value. That's eight or above. So anything that's eight or above in the liver will be red. I see. Um, one of the scanner scanner manufacturers will also display from zero to twenty. So it's the same image, just rescaled. And in this case, you can see a little bit more of that heterogeneity in the liver. Um, but like I said, that's only available on one of the platforms. Is, is the quantification performed automatically? It, yes and no. Okay. So typically, these would be interpreted by a radiologist or an experienced tech that's drawing the, the regions of interest and then reporting oh, on a stiffness right. value. We do have an automated post-processing technique that we've used at Mayo and a few other places, um, FDA approved, that will automatically draw those regions of interest for you. Oh, nice. Okay. So it, it takes some of the... Um, time away from the the radiologist they do have to approve the final the final images right but then it also helps with inter and intra reader variability right which can sure. be an important consideration so we've looked at one valid mre in a stiff liver we also see this is a really good example in a soft liver so we talk about measuring stiffness, but actually one of the cool things is we could also measure shear wave attenuation. So how how far the waves propagate into the liver. In a normal healthy liver, they don't go as far. They, they attenuate very quickly. In a stiff liver, they propagate through the whole liver. So if you look in this case, you can see... Again, we see that signal loss in the subcutaneous tissue. This is an intravoxel phase dispersion effect, so that motion in the MRI. Right. If in the, the phase and wave images, you can see that the shear waves don't go as far into the liver, but this is still a successful exam. And then when you're looking at that mast elastogram, it's a small region of usable area that's not hatched out, but it's there. So one of the common calls we get from inexperienced users is, 
I, I ran it on myself or I ran it on a tech, right. they're a healthy person, and we, we're just not getting shear waves into the body. What's wrong? We're having really small regions of high confidence. That's expected in a normal subject. I see. So that's one of the things to keep an eye out for. If you're testing it on yourself, doing some QA, right. um, this, is, this is expected. Well, so the first slide that you talked about with the stiffness, that's fibrosis, right? Yes. And this would be more fatty. And this would just be, I would say, a normal liver. We just don't normal. we okay. don't have the MRI, PDFF, the mm. CSC, MRE to know if okay. it's a fatty liver. Right. Um, but we actually have looked and we don't see that fatty that fat or steatosis in the liver affects the stiffness measured by MRE. Oh, okay. So you could have a really fatty liver, you could have a normal liver, and you could have the same stiffness. We don't really see a huge effect of the presence of fat on liver stiffness measured by MRE. I see. So what is something, like if a patient had a hemangioma, would that show up? And would you want to adjust your prescription based off that? You, you could. So we typically say to avoid any non-liver tissue. So if if you're looking at things like, say, a tumor, y- you could try to avoid that or just make sure that there's enough liver liver present in the slice that they can still draw a region of interest avoiding anything else. So I mentioned the attenuation. Um, this is just an example showing what I mean by that. The shear waves don't propagate quite as far in healthy tissue. So this is kind of normal and expected. Um, But then if we get into an example of an exam that failed, so here's a failed MRE. There's no waves. How do I know that? If you look at the phase and wave image, it looks completely flat. We're not seeing that wave coming in and out of the page, for example. Oh, yeah. But the first and the mast elastogram is completely hatched out. So So the paddle didn't vibrate. So that's the question. How do you know? So if you're looking at the subcutaneous tissue, you don't see that signal loss right under the paddle. In this patient, you can actually tell that the paddle was there because you see that the the body was flat. Right. So um, one of the things, the first thing I would do, did you hook it up? Right. Because I've I've been guilty of this before. (laughs) Exactly. So you you're getting the patient set up and you walk out of the room and you completely forget to connect the tube. So go back and check that first. But that's also a good reason to ask the patient too, right? It's a good reason to test it in the pre-scan and say, did you feel that vibration? For sure. So that that's step one. Check the connection. (laughs) Um, You can always walk into the equipment room and check that the driver's on. Oh, it doesn't, right. it shouldn't get turned off, but every once in a while it does. Right. So that, that'd be another check. Maybe fall asleep or something? Yeah, some of them they shouldn't anymore have oh, a sleep okay. timer, but they that was a thing. So okay. um, you can go back, check that it's on. It, it shouldn't, like I said, it shouldn't really be an issue, but okay. that's one thing you can do. Um, but also checking with the patient that they felt the vibration during right. the pre-scan is a good first step. So this is an example of a failed MRE due to insufficient motion. So we look, we don't really see any waves in the liver. And then if you look at the mass elastogram, there's really no usable area here. But we do see signal loss or under the driver and also some waves in the in the phase and wave image. So it just wasn't tight enough maybe? So check belt tightness or increase the amplitude because this is a is a, a bit, bit of a larger subject. So those would be two things. Check the belt and then you could increase the amplitude and repeat the exam here. And then we talked about 
Oh, this is a, this next one has failed because of the bowel. So I mentioned you can oh, yeah. move the driver if you see the presence of bowel in between the driver and the liver. In this case, and we see that here. So if, if the driver had been more um, on top of the body, then we didn't ha we could have an, a not successful exam, but shifting it to the right or posterior can help in this in this case. And the last example um, we talked about. So this is this is a case of liver iron. Oh, so yeah. we're not we're seeing really dark signal in the liver, really noisy phase images. And this would be a case where you you wouldn't necessarily need to repeat the exam because repeating it isn't going to get you right. what you're looking for. Unless you can move unless, into 1.5. Unless you can move into 1.5 or you did a GRE exam to start and you have EPI available. Right. Okay. I don't see a lot of that signal loss, though. In, in the liver? There. With, well, with how, from the paddle itself, you said? Oh, that's true. Tissue. So this, that's, that's a really good point. You can kind of see some of it, but you at least know in this case that the liver is really dark. It's so pretty that's evident. probably yeah. why the exam was failed. Sometimes if the driver isn't perfectly placed, you might not see that signal loss right under the driver because it's too high or too low. Right. But the body's pretty good at propagating shear waves. The diaphragm actually helps propagate the shear waves into the liver. So depending on where the driver is, even though you might not see some of the signal loss right under it, you could still see waves in the liver. Awesome. Super interesting. So I guess, where do you see the future of elastography going? You mentioned yeah. brain imaging. Yeah, so yeah. I think one of, uh, let's talk about the abdomen first. Oh, yeah. So we do s continue to see liver MRE being used more and more, I think, with the, the growing prevalence of fatty liver disease. Right. Um, I work in clinical trials, so there are some really exciting things and some pharmaceuticals that are coming that could help potentially treat and reverse the fibrosis we're seeing caused by liver disease. Oh, so we'll continue to see that. I think other abdominal organs that are interesting, the spleen, which is, you can kind of see in, in some of these images, yeah, is right neighbor, there, right? Yeah. liver's neighbor. <laughs> and one of the things that we are continuing to see both at Mayo and other places is the importance of spleen stiffness to diagnose portal hypertension. So this is increase in pressure due to liver disease and some other causes, particularly cirrhosis, that, that can cause the spleen to become very stiff and sometimes enlarged. It can be difficult to diagnose. Really the only currently known way to diagnose it is to actually measure pressure in the portal vein, oh. which is very hard to get to. Right. It sounds kind of invasive. Yes. So sounds if we tough. could have a non-invasive technique. They do like a phase contrast through it or something? No, they, they stick a catheter in there oh, and yeah. measure pressure. Oh. So thinking more something less invasive. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Oh, well, I noticed in one of your images there, it yeah. almost looked like the spleen may have been red. Yes. So sometimes the spleen can be red. Oh, one of the things we didn't talk about, I'm going to talk about it now because this is important. Oh, yeah. The spleen stiffness can actually vary quite a lot by whether the patient is fasting or not. Oh, but so can the liver. That makes sense. So we do see changes in liver stiffness based on uh, fasting status. So when you're thinking about doing a liver MRE checking is the recommendation is four hours fasting. Um, 
plain water is fine. We don't see a change in liver stiffness based on hydration. But here are three different patients, one a normal subject, one a patient with early liver disease, so stage F0 fibrosis, and then one with cirrhosis. And you could even see the increase. Just 30 minutes Just makes a 30 huge minutes after difference. a meal uh, wow. makes a huge difference in liver stiffness. So this could lead to overstaging of fibrosis. So we recommend four hours fasting right. and the spleen is particularly is sensitive. Is it detrimental enough to maybe reschedule a patient? Yes. Or at least wait? Call back yeah. or wait. Because if, so this patient here, this, this is a, a I think a, a, about a 40% increase in liver stiffness. So it, they are an F0, but if they had had their MRE at this, at 30 minutes after the meal, they could have been a stage two fibrosis. So this could be a really substantial increase in liver stiffness. Right. Um, so it's it's worth calling the patient back if that's allowed. You wouldn't happen to know what meal this was exactly. It was a high calorie meal, like a buffet style type of meal. I I don't like remember Chick Fil A, Chick Fil A. I have to go back to the publication. Something, yeah, no. a big burger and a shake, nice. something like that. Well, at least it was worth it. I guess, it was. Huh? It was probably worth it. <laughs> yeah. So um, this that's one really important factor is making sure the patients are fasting, but then the spleen. One of one of the, I think really interesting things about liver MRE, we meant I mentioned that we do two D MRE, so this is measuring propagation of shear waves in two dimensions. Right. We've been using three D MRE, so looking at wave propagation X, Y, and Z. It's a little bit more accurate, but it takes a little bit more time. So we're we're talking three to six breath holds instead of one. Okay. Um, but it allows us to get a more accurate picture of that shear wave propagation, and doing it in the liver. We all in doing in the abdomen, we can do simultaneous liver and spleen, right. and we see the importance of spleen to predict portal hypertension, which has really strong implement impl implications. I can say that <laughs> it's a tough word for uh, risk for development of future liver disease and even mortality. So spleen stiffness, I think, is a growing application. I did talk about brain at the beginning. I think it's a really exciting use of. Right of elastography because you can't touch the brain. Right. So I worked on a glioma project in graduate school and I was surprised to learn that gliomas, which are a very aggressive form of brain cancer, they're softer than brain tissue. We usually think of really aggressive tumors as being stiff. So I, I, I remember seeing that first patient going, it's soft. And then I talked to a neurosurgeon and they're like, well, duh. Because they know this, right? Mm -hmm. They get to feel this and they get to see this. Right. But for yeah. those of us who don't, that was surprising to right. me. So I think some of the cool things about brain MRE is that ability to help a, a neurosurgeon know what is going on in there. So meningiomas are a benign type of brain tumor, but they often have to be removed because of the damage they're causing to the surrounding brain. Right. But meningiomas can vary in stiffness from toothpaste-like which is suckable, very technical term. It's a weird right. word. <laughs> very technical term. Or they can be rock hard, and they have to be removed piece by piece. And that has really important implications. That word again, Implica implications. <laughs> right. implications. For surgical planning, both in the approach to how they're going to remove it, do they can they suck it out, or do they have to cut it out, and in time. So if you think about it, 
for the patient, is it one hour or is it eight hours? That's right. really important for anesthesia, preparing the patient and their families, things like that. And without elastography, there wasn't, there's not really a reliable way to know that in advance. Oh, right. Sometimes these tumors could have calcifications you could see on CT, but that that's rare. So the ability right. of elastography to help identify those really soft and really hard tumors can be an important aid for the surgeon in oh, their planning sure, process. Sure, because they probably had to plan for both scenarios just in exactly. case, right? Oh, wow. And one of the other really cool brain applications is actually something called normal pressure hydrocephalus. Oh, yeah. So this is a, um, I'm not a, a brain expert, so I, I made some notes for myself. Um, this, this is a, accumulation of cerebrospinal fluid in the brain. Mm -hmm. So it can have symptoms that are memory loss, urinary issues, uh, abnormal gait. They're very nonspecific, particularly the memory loss. But this is a really treatable condition. They can install a shunt and remove that excess fluid, and then the patient's symptoms are resolved. Right. But how do you know? Is it memory loss because they have Alzheimer's or is there excess fluid? Right. Really hard to, to tell in a lot of subjects. Sometimes you do see the ventricles increasing in size, but that's also pretty nonspecific. But with MRE and the, the work done at Mayo led by John Houston and his brain MRE team, nice. we do see regional changes in stiffness that are unique to normal pressure hydrocephalus compared to something like Alzheimer's or even in age and sex matched controls. So if you see an increase in the occipital lobe compared to the rest of the brain, that might be an indication that it's normal pressure hydrocephalus, which we can cure, right. versus something like Alzheimer's, which we can't sure. at this time, hopefully someday. Right. No, for sure. Here's my stupid question of the day. So when it comes to brain elastography... Yes. I imagine there's an optimal positioning on that, and I can't. I can't. It's probably not through the occipital. So Maybe we the... we do have, I, and I don't have a picture of it, but we do have a brain specific driver. So it has a smaller active area that's more like a pillow that you put behind the head in the head coil, right. and the patients lay on that, and it vibrates during the scan. Um, um, Dr. Houston likes to say it feels a little bit like if you bit down on an electric toothbrush those vibrations. So one of the first applications in that was done at Mayo for research was on Alzheimer's patients. So this is a very difficult patient cohort to image and these subjects could tolerate the exam. So that that's kind of a good indication that this is this is going to be accepted by most subjects. For sure. I actually volunteered for one. Yes. Uh, and it I've had a few. Like a Four leaf clover type of thing yeah. almost, right? So that helps position the driver in the head coil, right. but really that active area, that little pillow behind your head that vibrates right. is, it's the actual is kind driver. Of, yeah. So it is off the occipital. It is. Yeah. yeah. So, so you're I don't think right. it would want to. No, I was wrong. That's a stupid question. No, actually, I was wrong, but thank you for helping me out. <laughs> I was thinking it would be because that's the most dense part of your yeah. skull. I would think it would be like along a fissure, maybe even like if you can get it like through the frame of magnum somehow, but like right. how would you do that? I don't know. Yeah, so if you think about your skull and your brain, we usually try not to have impacts on the skull that would transmit directly to the brain. So even though we're vibrating just the back of the head, if you see images of waves propagating through the brain, they come in from all sides. They, they propagate from the outside in. And it's actually really cool how your body does that, distributes the right. motion. That is cool. 
Did they, they? So they never did it on you, or they did? No, they did. And it is. It's just like using an electric toothbrush. I would say not even that much, honestly. It was really chill. It yeah. wasn't bad because I was worried. I'm like, do I need to put something in my mouth for? Like what? Like what? I, I was kind of nervous, but it really wasn't that bad. It was yeah. actually cool. It's nice to have to be able to have those experiences too. So right. you know what it feels like and you can describe it to the patient. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty cool. I think we're wrapping it up. What do you think? Is there yeah. anything we haven't covered yet? I don't think so. I Katie? Think we talked about a lot. We did. Liver transplant patients. Yes. Both the receiver and the giver. Oh we've, really? we've had studies done with MRE oh, on nice. that. So it's still possible. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Dang. I'm trying to think of who cannot have one, but it sounds like everyone pretty much can, huh? Yeah, there, I, I think any, any metal near the right. liver might cause signal loss, but that's, that's a contraindication to MR in general. But we're right. getting better and better about imaging For with sure. metal. So no, that's awesome. That, that's one I, thing. I, if you truly couldn't hold your breath, there could be a challenge there. Um, oh. But I've seen there's some really interesting work developing free breathing MRE sequences, oh, nice. which can help with that. Um, and then also, if if you really tighten the belt down and it's 14 seconds or 17 seconds, somewhere along those lines, if the patient breathes shallowly, you can still get a pretty decent exam, even if if they're not yeah. truly holding their breath. Wow. This has been extremely helpful. Yeah. Dr. Pepton, thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so guys. much. This I know this is definitely going to help us, you know, get better studies and hopefully yes. help everyone else watching who performs exactly. MREs. So. And we're always happy to help, too. So if there's ever any questions, you can contact Resoundant. We have a website oh, or nice. you can reach out to your scanner manufacturer and they can provide some training as well. Oh, I train them. So then they come and train you. <laughs> a little bit of flex there. <laughs> well, you're awesome. Thank you, Kay. Appreciate Thank your time. You yeah, um, we usually ask a couple of follow up questions. Uh, I'm curious if you hadn't gone into this profession, what profession do you think you would have been? Oh, that's a good question. So I current today, right? Every, every day changes. Right. Yeah. But today <laughs> I'm I keep dreaming about a restaurant. Oh. So I grew okay. up in a family that loves food and was really good at making it. And some of my best memories are sitting around the table eating great food, laughing Aww. till your sides hurt. So any any food that I would say the good food that feeds the body and good company that fuels the soul. Oh, nice. If I could reproduce that in restaurant form. <laughs> <laughs> That's your slogan right there. Right? The Do you way. have a name yeah. of this restaurant? Good company. Ooh. All right. Like, I like don't, that. Don't that was, was good. Me. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I don't know. Reggie, Katie, what do you think? Yeah. Thanks, everyone, for watching, subscribing. You know, we appreciate all the support. Yeah, leave a comment about where you like to put the paddle. <laughs> and uh, again, thank you for watching. Thank you for subscribing. Do those things that YouTubers tell you to do. Give a shout out to her three kids. Thank you for yeah. your time. Appreciate it. And uh, Zone 3 Podcast. Yeah. Out. The information and comments provided in the Zone 3 Podcast and website are not intended to be technical or medical recommendations or advice for individuals or patients. The information and comments provided under the auspices of Zone 3 Podcasts and their guests are of a general nature and should not be considered specific to any individual or patient. Whether or not a specific patient is referenced by the physician, technologist, individual, group, or other entity seeking information. Zone 3 Podcast may provide links or references to websites. Such links are provided as a convenience to our listeners seeking more information on topics. These websites are not affiliated with Zone 3 Podcast, nor do they endorse or manage content discussions unless otherwise stated during recording.